Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast, episode number 265. I'm your host, as always, Philip Hansen. Now, before I get into the news today, I would like to brag and say that I've been on excavation during the summer, so that is uh, why I've been a little bit silent post the summer vacation as I've been trying to get my life back in order. But I'm now finally here to bring you your prehistoric news, which is both exciting for me and for you. So before getting into today's news, I would like to remind all of you that Diego does collect all of these stories from different places around the web, and then we collect them at news.stonepages.com, where you can find the sources for all of the stories that we cover in today's podcast, as well as any that we may have missed. So without further ado, let's see what the lineup is for today. We'll be starting off with a proto-Stonehenge news story about a site that is close to Stonehenge, but isn't actually really part of Stonehenge directly. Anyways, then we have a story on the coolest fellow around town, Utsi. Following that, we have Denisovans being much older than previously thought, which may have some ties to Neanderthals and modern humans. Then we have the British showing that they're much different than the Europeans and turning out to be cannibals, or at least they used to be. I guess they ate all of them. Then we have some paint workshops in Turkey being the oldest in the world. Then we go to India, where we have a substantial find of dolmens, namely over 300 of them, which is more dolmens than you can throw, well, the dolmen at, I guess. And again, more gruesome news. Uh, We have some uh, skull cults being found in Turkey. And finally, on Ireland, they seem to be led to dismember bodies. So without further ado, let's get into the stories. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, and for the first story of today's podcast, as promised, not really a Stonehenge news as such, but more of a proto-Stonehenge news story, as a long barrel near Stonehenge is to be excavated. It is believed a Neolithic burial mound near Stonehenge could contain human remains more than 5,000 years old, according to experts. The monument lies in what is called the Pusey Vale, which is halfway between Avebury and Stonehenge in Wiltshire. And it was identified through aerial photography as well as geophysical survey, which followed said photography. Now, the archaeological excavation will be done by the University of Reading and will be the university's final field school, or at least archaeological field school. Now, students and staff, as well as uh, volunteers from the area, have helped investigate the site of a Neolithic long burial, which is in a place known as Cat's Brain, and it is the first to be fully investigated in nearly half a century in Wiltshire. Now, Cat's Brain is believed to predate a nearby monument known as Martin Henge by over 1,000 years, and, as I said before, it could contain human remains that date back to around 3600 BCE. The cat's brain long barrel was found in the middle of a farmer's field and consists of two ditches which flank what appears to be a central building, and this may have been a covered mound made from earth dug from said ditches, though it has been plowed away by over the many, many years of farming. Dr. Jim Leary, who's the director of the university's archaeology field school, said opportunities to fully investigate long barrels are virtually unknown in recent times, and this represents a fantastic chance to carefully excavate one using the very latest techniques and technology. Discovering the buried remains of what could be the ancestors of those who built Stonehenge would be the cherry on the cake of an amazing project. Now, Dr. Leary's co-director, Amanda Clark, also said, This incredible discovery of one of the UK's first monuments offers a rare glimpse into this important period in history. We are setting foot inside a significant building that has lain forgotten and hidden for thousands of years. 
In addition to the excavation at Cat's Brain Long Bear site, the University of Reading's Archaeology Field School is working at the Martin Henge, which is the largest henge in the country, built around 2400 BCE, also within the Vale of Pusey. Very little archaeological work has been carried out in the Vale, especially compared with the well-known nearby sites of Avesbury and Stonehenge. The project, of course, aims to fill this gap in our knowledge and to highlight the importance of this area in the Neolithic period. And now for the second story of today's podcast, the continuing story of Ötzi the Iceman, my personal favorite uh, staple of the archaeological podcast, apart from, of course, Stonehenge. Now, for those of you who don't know, the mummified remains of the Chalcolithic Man were first found in the Ultal Alps between Austria and Italy in September 1991. Since the discovery of Ötzi the Iceman, he has become very well known across the entire world, and has unraveled a lot of mysteries of that period as well as enthralled us, the viewers of today. Researchers from the University of Padua have been analyzing the copper head, which forms the cutting blade of the axe that have been found along Utsi's body. Before this research began, the original hypothesis was that the copper from the head had been mined and forged in either the local alpine area or the nearby Balkans. Now, the team used chemical analysis and isotope analysis which was led by Professor Gilberto Azioli, and it, they came to the conclusion that the copper was actually mined in southern Tuscany. Now, the belief that the copper itself was mined in the southern Tuscan region is from the fact that the lead isotope variation in the southern Tuscan region is very unique in Europe and in the Mediterranean areas. This, of course, raises new questions as to whether it was traded copper ore or the finished article itself. Either way, it has identified new trade routes that were previously unknown in the 4th millennia BCE. And now for our next story, we will get an answer to the question of whether or not the Denisovans were an isolated part of our lineage. This comes from the fact that during the time of the Neanderthals, a contemporary uh, group of hominids known as the Denisovans were also living. And while we know very little about them, we do share some common DNA and the fact that they might have made a positive contribution to our immune system. They also did share some common DNA with their Neanderthal cousins. Now, until quite recently, all that we knew about the Denisovans were based on a few bone fragments, that is, two teeth to be exact, and a finger bone, all of which were found in the Altai Mountains in Siberia. Now, there has been an exciting fourth find, which is of a baby tooth, at the site uh, back in November of 2015. This has caused some extensive research at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. The tooth is actually quite well dated, uh, being dated to between 128,000 and 227,000 years old, due to the fact that it was found in a sedimentary layer. Now, this predates previous Denisovan finds by between 50,000 and 100,000 years. This would mean that the Denisovans had occupied the site in Serbia for much longer than modern humans have occupied Europe. One of the people from the Institute, Vivian Sloan, is quoted saying, Such a long span of time increases the chances that the Denisovans and the Neanderthals may have interacted and interbred. However, the big point is that all that we know from the Denisovans are emanating from one site. And because of the fact that there are no other locations, researchers are unable to determine whether the finds so far represent the entire spectrum of Denisovans or just an isolated branch of the Denisovans. So, following the story of Denisovans, let's go back to Britain where a collection of bones suggest a cannibalistic ritual in ancient Britain. 
Now, the archaeological evidence suggests that most of the cannibalism we see in prehistory occurred for complex and varied reasons. And recently, human bones found in Gao's Cave, which is a sizable limestone cave in Cheddar Gorge in the southwest of England, bear unmistakable signs of cannibalism. Researchers have actually described what seem to be drinking vessels made from human skulls among the site's remains. Gao's Cave has yielded one of the most extensive Magdalenian human bone assemblages ever found, and for those of you like myself who's unsure of what it is, a Magdalenian bone assemblage typically consists of cut-marked and broken human bones, which are very common in Magdalenian European sites, which are dated back to 17,000 to 12,000 years before present. Now, the bones in this cave were deposited on the floor along with butchered large animal remains and pieces of flint. The new carbon dates also suggest that the cave was occupied by Magdalenian hunters for a very short span of time, 14,700 years ago, possibly no more than two or three human generations. In a recent paper, an anthropologist from the Natural History Museum in London, Dr. Sylvia Bello, and her colleagues analyzed and compared zigzag incisions on one arm bone with hundreds of butchering marks and engravings on human and animal bones from Gao's Cave and other archaeological sites. What they found was that the bones match patterns engraved on animal bones found in France from the same period, suggesting it was a common motif at the time. The engraving was produced by a single individual using one tool during only one event, And what is exceptional is the choice of human bone and the cannibalistic context in which it was produced. Now, this is significant because it appears that the engraving was part of some form of cannibalistic practice and implying a very complex ritualistic funerary behavior that has never before been recognized in the Paleolithic period, which is, of course, the intensive processing of entire corpses to extract edible tissues. Now, the tool manufacture and decorative signs at Gauss Cave had close parallels with those at other European Magdalenian sites. The portable art from the cave suggests the carvers were competent and experienced in working on different raw materials, and the artifacts there include worked and engraved fragments of animal bones, amber pebbles, minute fragments of ivory, and three perforated batons, which are common artifacts of debated use nearly always made from reindeer antlers. And now for our next story, we have an 8,000-year-old paint workshop discovered in Turkey. The discovery of said paint shop makes it one of the oldest paint shops in the world, having been found at the ancient settlement in northwestern Turkish province of Eskisihia. The archaeologists working at the ancient settlement mound of uh, Kalnitas discovered traces of paint from 6000 BCE. The site is located north of central Eskisihia, and the settlement lies on the northern slope of a hill in the middle of a valley. It is considered to be one of the oldest settlements of the central West Anatolian region, and the mound was a permanent settlement encircled with large retaining walls to the east and the west. Professor Ali Umut Turkan, who is the Anadolu University Archaeology Professor, said that the large walls provided protection for the ancient people. He noted that the research concluded that the mound was used as a protection center and a workshop. And I quote, Since the beginning of excavations, we wondered if a paint workshop existed here. We discovered samples of painted mortars, ground stones, and a container. Professor Turkan also noted that they think the paint could have been red ochre, which was produced from mineral resources. The research at Kanlita Settlement Mound started in 1989 after Eskisehia's Archaeology Museum's discovery. Uh, Professor Turkan and his team have been working at the site since 2008. They have discovered two mounds, Paleolithic workshops, and three burial sites. Moving slightly away from Turkey, we go to India, where dolmens dating back to around 3,000 years were found in southern India. A team of archaeologists has discovered more than 300 dolmens dating back to around 3,000 years ago, 
in Malasandam, which is the Krishnagiri district in southern India. I'm sorry to all of our Indian listeners who I've just offended by that pronunciation. According to the archaeologist, it was the first time such a large number of dolmens were discovered in a single place in the region. The dolmens were found amidst a heap of stones atop moral rock hillock in Malasandram, and according to Aram Akrishnan, who is the president of Aram Historical Research Center, or the AHRC, the exact age of the dolmens can be ascertained only after lab tests. Most dolmens are in a damaged condition. Some of them were eroded over the years, while others were damaged by miscreants. Krishnan also added that all the dolmens had carvings on one side. Christian and his team have sent a few samples of the stones for a lab test, and the archaeologist also urged the state government and the Central Archaeological Survey of India to take steps to preserve the dolmens. Now sadly, some of the dolmens have been damaged by people who have searched the area for precious metals such as gold and silver. Krishnan adding, we should take steps to preserve the dolmens as they tell ancient history to younger generations. For the second to last story, we have evidence of a skull cult being found at a Neolithic site in Turkey. Archaeologists have made a remarkable find of a 12,000-year-old stone temple known as Gürbükli Tepe, uh, which is probably very much mispronounced, I'm sorry, in southeastern Turkey, and uncovered the remains of human skulls that were stripped of their flesh and carved with deep, straight grooves running from front to back. This is significant because this is the first archaeological evidence and record there is of skull decorations from this region. According to Gary Rolofson, who is an archaeologist at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, this is completely new and we don't have a model to go on. The purpose of the carvings is unclear, but they may have been part of an ancient religious practice. There seems to be a focus on ritual reuse after decapitation. Now, the site does boast multiple enclosures with tall T-shaped pillars surrounded by rings of stones and many carved with reliefs. These structures are unique for humans at the time, and when the excavations began in the 1990s, archaeologists expected to find human burials. Instead, what they found were animal bones by tens of thousands, mixed in with about 700 fragments of human bones, more than half of them from skulls, and these were scattered throughout loose fill of stones and gravel. In a paper published in Science Advances, Gresky and her co-authors described three large skull fragments from the site, each about the size of a hand. They are characterized by cut marks on the bones, suggesting someone removed the flesh and then carved the bone with a deep, straight groove running from the front to the back of the skull. One of the skulls had a hole drilled into it, although only half of that hole was preserved, and heads missing or decapitated are also represented in the site's stone artwork. The heads of some of the stone statues were deliberately removed or knocked off, and archaeologists think that one of the statues, which has been dubbed Gift Bearer, depicts a kneeling figure holding a human head. Now, the attention of skulls is part of a much longer tradition, but this is the first instance in this region. As Rolison says, this treatment of fragments is awfully unique. I don't know of any other skulls where they've been carved or drilled. According to Gresky, they're deep incisions, but not nicely done. Someone wanted to make a cut, but not in a decorative way. It could be to mark them as different, or to fix decorative elements, or to hang the skulls from somewhere. However, it is worth noting that whatever the purpose of the skulls, the carvings seem to mark them as outliers, because dozens of other skull fragments have been found on the site with no signs of carving or cutting. That then suggests that the skulls maybe were singled out after their owner's deaths for some unknown reason. Gresky suggests they are really special, these three individuals. The skulls might have been displayed as part of ancestor worship or as trophies to show off the remains of dead enemies. 
it is worth noting that not everybody is equally excited about the finds. Uh, one example is Michelle Bonogovsky, a visiting scholar at the University of California and is part of Berkeley's archaeological research facility. And she argues that there is not enough evidence to say what the skulls were for and that there never may be, adding, this is thousands of years before writing, so you can't really know. These marks do appear to be intentional, but what the intention was, I can't say. And for our last story of today's podcast, uh, we have more dismemberment and human body news. Uh, coming from Ireland, where the first evidence of dismemberment in prehistoric Ireland was recently discovered. This comes as the result of a new analysis of bones taken from a 5,300-year-old passage tomb complex at Carrowkeel in County Sligo, which revealed evidence of burial practices and death rites of the ancient peoples of Ireland. The team of researchers analyzing the bones includes Sam Moore, who is a lecturer in prehistoric archaeology at IT Sligo. The bones were analyzed from an original excavation at Carrow Keel in 1911, led by Professor R.A.S. McAllister. They were subsequently presumed missing or lost until a group of boxes with the name Carrow Keel on them was discovered in the archive in the University of Cambridge in 2001. The bones date from between 3500 and 2900 BCE. The project was led by Dr. Thomas Cador from the University College London, with the osteological research undertaken by Dr. Johnny Geber from the Department of Anatomy at New Zealand's University of Otago. The group also included Sligo-based archaeologist Dr. Robert Hensey and an independent researcher named Patrick Mahan. Sorry if I mispronounced your name. Now, the team analyzed bones from seven passage tombs that include both unburned and cremated human remains from around 40 individuals. According to Dr. Geber, he and his colleagues determined that the unburned bones displayed evidence of dismemberment. Adding, we found indications of cut marks caused by stone tools at the site of tendon and ligament attachments around the major joints, such as the shoulder, elbow, hip, and ankle. Dr. Gaber also says the new evidence suggests that a complex burial rite was undertaken at Carrow Keel, which involved a funerary rite and placed particular focus on the deconstruction of the body. Attempting to understand the reasons these ancient communities dismembered the bodies is one of the real fascinations with this research, says Sam Moore. In these societies of the past, ancestry had more to do with the group identity. This appears to have held real importance in Neolithic Ireland. The study of Carrowkeel is the first definite discovery of similar practices during the same period on the island of Ireland, with a new study being able to show that the Carrowkeel complex was a highly significant place in Neolithic society in Ireland, which had an important role in facilitating interaction with the dead and a spiritual connection with the ancestors. And with that last story, we have reached the end of today's podcast. I'm sorry for how gruesome this one was, but it is very fitting seeing as a lot of these stories came out around uh, September and October. So, you know, very thematic podcast, I'd say. And we even did have an Utsi and a somewhat Stonehenge news story as well. Now, if uh, this podcast has whetted your appetite completely for prehistoric news podcast, you're always welcome to come to news.stonepages.com. Here you can find these sources for all of today's stories, as well as any that we may have missed, and we most certainly did miss some, and I would definitely recommend you read up on those as well. While you're on that page, I would like to say that while the podcast is free, we of course appreciate all forms of donations, no matter how small. Even something as simple as a buck can help us out uh, with our server costs. 
If you're listening to us on iTunes and you have a minute before going to news.stonepages.com, why not leave us a five-star review? It helps us get noticed and helps us come out further in the world as well as see what you guys think of the podcast. So without further ado, my name has been Philip Hansen and I will see you next time.